2020, myself and Peter Marion uh, tag-teamed on co-hosting the WGSN Create Tomorrow podcast. But as we announced the 10 trends for 2021, Peter and I thought we'd come together to talk through the highlights. So Peter, the first one on this list is kind of a quirky one, digisexuality. Um, was I surprised to see this in the list? Maybe not. 2019, or sorry, 2020 was a very strange year. Uh, so weird that it felt like it was two years. Do you think that's the real reason that this has snuck onto our list for the coming 12 months? Well, actually, this is something we've been talking about for quite some time. We first started writing about this in early 2019. Cassandra Napoli um, on the Insight team, she wrote the first report on this, and then I did something else on on the changing uh, face of intimacy. So we've been writing about this for some time already. But the reason why it probably has a little bit more resonance right now is obviously everything that's happened through the pandemic, that sort of fear of intimacy, fear of coming together, fear of physical touch, fear of all the messy things that happen when you're emotionally entangled with another person, um, which has really kind of accelerated this trend that we picked up, which was really more of a, it was really an emerging trend in 2019 um, when we started talking about it. And it's kind of accelerated a little bit through this period now. Um, And what it really looks like when we were talking about it in 2019 was this idea of people identifying as being digisexuals and using items or technologies such as VR, AI and robotics to create those uh, moments of physical contact and intimacy that you might normally get from another human being. But I think what we're seeing change now is uh, what digisexuality means to more mainstream consumers. And um, and that's really kind of taking the forms of things that aren't necessarily uh, technological. Well, it, it is technological, but not as uh, self-identificationary. That's not necessarily a word, but you know what I mean? Um, in terms of, you know, people using things like oral pornography, um, apps like Dipsy, which are becoming sort of a little bit more mainstream, particularly for women. Um, also that sex toys really sold out during the first pandemic. What we were seeing is this huge demand for them in the first wave of lockdowns that we were experiencing in March. And then also the rise of certain influences um, that are really starting to create that boyfriend experience uh, without necessarily having uh, any of the real emotional entanglement of being in a real relationship. Okay, you've got to tell me more. What what does a boyfriend experience mean, but without the emotional entanglement of a real relationship? Well, so one of the things I've come across on TikTok um, is this guy called The Real Rahul Rai, and he has 2.3 million TikTok followers. And he has started selling these things called boyfriend audios. It's part of his boyfriend kit. And in the kit, you get like a cushion with his face on it that you can cuddle up to. But you also get these things called boyfriend audios, which are audio tracks that make it a snap to take me to the entertainment experience on the go, he says, um, which is basically he gives you like these kind of audio files that you can listen to as you're going to bed, when you wake up and you need that boost in the morning. It's just creating that kind of like um, uh, emotional cheerleader that the people need and maybe aren't necessarily getting at the moment. Do you think there's some there's sort of something I wasn't say tragic. Tragic isn't the right word. Something kind of sad about this that um, after a year and let's face it, it's still going on with people not being able to interact with people in person. Do you see this as a long term shift which is going to create kind of emotional disattachment? you know, with other humans? Or do you think this is just a new way to connect that we have grown more used to and therefore actually could enhance real life relationships? 
Um, I think it, it varies really on the person and the age and, and the, the person's circumstances. I mean, I think for people that have been living alone uh, through this pandemic period, it has been really difficult. And I think there is a lot of fear and a lot of concern around sort of moving back into that physical real life dating sort of situation even now. Um, and so that might mean that 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 fear will continue. Um, but maybe it's just a stopgap for people as they're sort of starting to pursue uh, new relationships. I mean, what I would hope that we would come out of the pandemic with is a, as an increased desire for connection with each other because we have been so separated and we have seen a lot of behaviours that really kind of uh, point to that sort of situation if we think about the rise in sort of community focuses and things like that. So it's really, I think it's just going to be another tool in the emotional resilience toolkit that we might need um, moving forward. So the second trend we've got on the list also follows the, the digital theme here, and that's genuine influencers which I'm fascinated by. And uh, I think it's a it's a good advancement in this area. Influencers have had a fairly bad rap and they definitely had to change strategies almost more than anyone else uh, during the pandemic. That idea of, you know, bragging about things you've got just left a really bad taste in everyone's mouth when uh, when the world was going through such horrific times and recessionary headlines and things like that. But what our Insight team are predicting is this: these genuine influencers, so people who have something really important to say, are going to become part of you know, global organisations' strategy, not just their marketing strategy, but a real way of getting the correct news across. And I was fascinated by this stat, 61%, I think, of under-35s. This was just in the UK, we're using social media as a news source this year. Now, obviously, that's not great news for big media organisations, but it does show how actually many generations are getting their information. How, how, I guess, what, what advice would you be giving businesses at the moment in terms of using this? And is this a new career we should all be thinking about? Well, I mean, it's really multifaceted because I think that, you know, obviously we've got the paid influencers that are, are really moving into this sort of genuine influencers um, narrative. But then there's also uh, peer influencers as well that are sort of starting to emerge, which uh, the UN has just announced a new initiative um, to uh, combat misinformation. And that's really about sort of sharing information and helping people share that information with their direct commu- uh, communities. But I think for businesses moving forward, um, how they tap into this is really around truth and honesty and clarity, which are all things that we've been talking about for quite some time. And it's really that sort of narrative around um, education. And again, that's also something that the marketing team on Insight have been writing so much about in recent years. Um, And it's just really about continuing that sort of thing of truth, honesty, clarity. But I think what's really interesting here and where there might have been a little bit of uh, backlash is that some of these influencers are getting paid by governments to share this information, which um, has sort of uh, rubbed people a little bit the wrong way in some sectors, um, particularly as we're going through this incredibly difficult time. And they kind of felt that that these influencers should be doing this sort of work for free. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's a debate that could be had back and forth. I think if it is your job, and, and let's face it, there is a sizable community now for whom, you know, social media is their full-time career they've been looking for different ways to bring money in and same as you know people in let's say I don't know more traditional jobs Um, and if you need to get important information across to a wide group of the population and they are not looking at news headlines they're not watching the news they're not consuming even news via um, uh, websites this is one way of doing it 
Um, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, something as, uh, as prestigious as the World Health Organization has tapped into this, uh, less as a trend, but more as a strategy for them to ensure that millions of people get the information which they're concerned otherwise doesn't get out there. I think, I think it's fascinating. I think the next step then is what does this mean to more typical brands who have done very well, some of them exceptionally well, by using the kind of the influences of three, four years ago, which is, you know, paying them to write about a product and to feature it in their home or, you know, on their bookcase or on their bathroom shelfie. And, and that, I think, that, that seems, that seems, I was going to say, old fashioned in a fast moving world. That does seem mm. quite old fashioned now. So how do you use them? And I think maybe it's that peer to peer point that you made just then, which is we're not going to be looking to the ones with the millions and millions of followers who are posting something commercial every day. It is coming to the you know people like us and what are they using? And I think to the kind of people I follow and as someone who was a journalist in a previous career, I tend to follow journalists and those are the ones that I trust rather than people who are just posting nice pictures, which I know uh, they've been sponsored to do so. Well, I mean, I think that that comes back to the real heart of the whole influencer conversation and debate, right? When we, when the sort of influencer shift sort of started to take place, it was really that shift of, you know, how do I find someone that's like me that's talking about stuff? And then it used to be, you know, when we start talking about the first wave of influencers, when we talk about blogging and things like that before it was... I don't know, corrupted by money, which is obviously not necessarily corrupt at all. But, you know, that's, that's sort of the way that it's sort of sometimes perceived is that they were doing it for the love of it and they were doing it because they wanted to share their ideas. And um, But to go back to what you were saying just a second ago um, about journalists, I think one of the things that we have seen through this pandemic period is actually the return of trust in journalists, in experts, in scientists and all of those sorts of people that perhaps consumers were shifting their attention away from. And I think, you know, one of those things that I I find kind of heartening through this period is really that that focus back on those people that do have a really expert point of view because you know we have had this infodemic we are facing these waves and waves and waves of misinformation and disinformation out in the marketplace and people don't really know what to believe so we do need to be using every single tool in our arsenal to make sure that truth and um, honest and helpful information is getting to consumers be that via governments be that be that via companies be that via any kind of organisation that serves people in the world. Now, if we look back over far longer than, than, you know, the last 12 months in the pandemic, retail is the sector which has probably been hit hardest by our changing world. And then with 2020 and the pandemic, they were, you know, it kind of felt like the final nail in the in the coffin. But what we have seen is, you know, innovative brands come out fighting in a world where people couldn't go in store in the same way that they could. And the trend that, that we've um, sort of uh, highlighted as one that we think will continue to grow is this idea of gamified retail. Is this just for, you know, millennials, Gen Zers who are used to that kind of gaming in that in those third world spaces? Or do you think this is something which is actually going to hit every generation? And and could this be the saviour of the retail economy? 
I mean, I don't necessarily think it's going to be the savior of the retail economy because I think the structural issues in the retail economy are so large and broad that it's going to require an incredibly multifaceted uh, response. But um, that said, gamified retail, I think, is a really important and really interesting one. Um, I don't necessarily think it's just for Gen Z um, and millennials. Um, If you think about the people that are spending time on Facebook games, they're people like my mom, who is a boomer. And, you know, and and they're people, you know, that they are spending loads of time on on those games. And where we've really seen this, sort of take root is really in China but it's really an extension of like some of the trends again it's the I guess the shift to online that we've seen which has happened so rapidly I mean it's been happening for a really long time obviously but it's accelerated so much this year it's something like 30% of retail transactions will take place this year online Um, so it's you know it's really about sort of starting to put into place some of those entertainment elements that we were really looking at in retail for many years when we were talking you know I mean I'm sure that you've spoken about it at conferences as well that idea of experiential retail and we're really starting to think about well what does experiential e-commerce look like and that's really around gamification and things like that because um you know we've and it's, it's really about finding that kind of happy balance between some of the trends that we've been talking about for some time around things like clean commerce, uh, smoothing the path to transaction and making that really easy for the client, whilst also kind of creating those moments of joy and entertainment and fun in there as well. Um, And that's really where that gamification uh, trend is coming from. But, you know, there's loads of really, really good examples of this coming out of China. I think it's it's a really good point. I've talked a lot about creating moments of joy this year in a world that can sometimes seem very dark and gloomy. How do we get those moments of escapism, especially the large swathes of the population who have moved to a working from home environment, which has its upsides, but there can be that, you know, merge between work and play or or, or a lack of delineation full stop. I'm sitting here recording this in my office, which is the corner of my bedroom, you know, how, how you create a, a, a switching off is very difficult. And I think moments of joy, moments of fun, little highlights in your day, which make you stop thinking about work, make you stop thinking about the terrible headlines you're reading, um, is, is, is so important. And making shopping enjoyable again when you're no longer doing it with your friends and stopping for a smoothie or coffee halfway round um, is really important. I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this particular trend evolves in the coming years. And to your point, one which is really coming out of China, but how other countries adopt it uh, and utilise it in ways that work for you know, the consumers in their area of the world, I think will be really interesting. And I think it's really important that when we talk about gamified retail, we talk about it in the sense of games rather than gamifying purchase behaviours. So something like, you know, I've seen some retailers doing things like where if you buy, you know, uh, X amount of money, you get a reward and that kind of creates a gamification mechanism in the sort of um, risk and reward kind of perspective. We're not talking about that here. It's really about fun games with characters and pleasure and toys and, and rewards as well um, that do mean to lead to discounts or free free items with purchase and things like that. But it's really about this idea of fun rather than sort of gambling. So one of the, I was going to say, one of the populations, a very large population that was really badly hit uh, during the pandemic were women. Uh, And, you know, millions and millions of high achieving women who were effectively driven back into the home uh, as children were, you know, kept out of schools and nurseries and things like that. You know, it's been 
exceptionally difficult, I think, for everyone. There's very few people who have been sheltered from the impact of COVID-19, but women in particular have really had a hard time. Now, one of the uh, trends that we are predicting are shecovery strategies. Um, talk to me a little bit about this, because I think this is, you know, this is something that we, we don't think is contentious, but perhaps is something that's going to require a lot of hard work and from, you know, all levels of society, all individuals, if we're going to get women back onto a level playing field with their male counterparts. I think this one for me, when we were discussing this episode, was the most create tomorrow um, one um, in terms of the list, in terms of the things that would require work for companies to achieve and that's really necessary for them to do so, especially for people in our kind of client sector, because if we start to think about obviously the terrible time that retailers are having on a macro basis, and, and many of those are obviously our clients, um, but also on a micro basis as you know, retailers start to look at right-sizing retail estates and closing stores and things like that, a lot of, um, you know, most of the people that work in physical retail stores are women. And obviously, as you close those stores, the people that are being impacted are women. And that's all really around sort of things like flexible work. And as people are shifting to e-commerce, um, largely the people that are being hired are men um, because of those e-commerce distribution roles, delivery drivers, you know, I mean, I hate to play into sexual stereotypes and gender role stereotypes, but they, they do tend to be uh, skew more male. And so what we really need to be starting to do is to really start to think about not only how do we get like the broad swaths of women um, back into into working and into into offices but also how do we help those women that have been negatively impacted by these large shifts large scale shifts that are happening as well because you know we start to think about what the broader impact of those things are and you know women do tend to control most of the household spending and they do make a lot of the decisions and and, you know, the broader impact of closing retail stores has on communities and things like that. And so we really need to start thinking about ways of getting uh, women back into work and making sure that they are not negatively impacted by what's been happening over the past year. I think my real hope with all of this uh, is that, you know, this is a kind of another light under the fire of the entrepreneur age. And um, I was listening to a retail expert on the radio the other morning who had a very optimistic take on the big brands failing on the high street, which was, you know, going to have these big spaces that can now be passed over to pop-ups to small brands who want to have a go. Now, obviously, that requires landlords to take hits on rents. It requires a radical rethink of what the high street, you know, high streets all over the world look like. But women have shown themselves to be amazing entrepreneurs and have latched onto that as career choices because it means that they can control their time better. They can make the choices about how they balance home and work. I, I, I guess I have cause to be optimistic, but I think it's going to require, as I said before, huge amounts of effort on every level of society and governments are going to have to play their part. Big businesses are going to have to play their part as well. And it, and it is going to require women themselves to take the first step and to demand that the other people in their life, male and female, also uh, do the heavy lifting too. Yeah, I mean, the other part of that is that we have seen, um, particularly with families, I mean, obviously, I think when we talk about this uh, trend in particular, I think it's it's really about um, mothers with the young children that have been the most affected by this. And um, if we think about uh, family housework and things like that, men have stood uh, stepped up a little bit, um, quite a bit, actually, to sort of um, start to create more of a level playing field around household work and things like that. But I mean, there is still a lot of work to be done. And I think 
think as we start to think about all of this sort of stuff, it's not just, and I, you know, if we think about the companies and the countries that have performed well through the pandemic, they have all been led by women. So, you know, it really is a case of hiring, celebrating, promoting, championing women across the businesses, but also creating those spaces for female entrepreneurs as well. And also um, men just stepping up and being great husbands, fathers, dads, you know, and making sure that they're doing their part as well. So um, coming to our last trend that we're going to talk about today, I um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I definitely wasn't a cliche. So while everyone was making sourdough and doing all these other things, I couldn't understand how anyone had time to do that. I was just barely holding oh, it together. Oh, I was a massive sourdough <laughs> freak. I was a total cliche. I was the opposite of you. But I've caught up rapidly, which means uh, by the time the second lockdown came around in the UK, I bought myself a kitten. And the one thing I've been doing lots more of is running. Now, I've always been a runner. I've always done lots of exercise. But with gyms closed, the classes that I used to do no longer uh, open uh, for visits. I have been running an awful lot. So our final trend, which is the circular runner, is one that I think is just phenomenal because... I bought a new pair of trainers right at the beginning, special running ones. And, you know, now I'm like, well, I've definitely done the mileage in them. Is it time to kick them off and buy a new pair, which just doesn't seem environmentally friendly? It doesn't seem sustainable when actually every other aspect of my life this year has been much more sustainable. So the circular runner one for me, again, very optimistic. Tell me a little bit. Are there some great examples of this we could talk about? I mean, this is one I'm also very excited about too, um, for different reasons. Um, because, I mean, I have been running a little bit as well, uh, but I got trail runners, trail running shoes because I've been running along a muddy sort of uh, pathway behind my flat. Um, but the reason I'm so excited about this is it's something that we've been writing about for a really long time. And it's something that I've been really excited about and really invested in for a very long time because it is something that we've been really optimistic about. And um, the one, I guess, I mean, there are a few that are sort of set to come out next year. I mean, we've got the Adidas, Ultraboost DNA Loop. We've got uh, Salomon is launching the Index One. And then On Running is launching a, um, a subscription-based shoe where you can, uh, you, can, um, you can own your shoes by subscription. So you pay a monthly fee and then you rotate them in and out. Because um, one of the things um, when we've been doing our research on this is that uh, brands have a really hard time getting the shoes back. People don't necessarily want to give them back on the timelines that they want to get them back on. Um, but the other reason why I'm really, really excited about this trend is that it really reflects the convergence of so many different ideas and so many different trends over the course of a really long time. If you think about things like um, Adidas and Nike launching the Prime Knit and the Fly Knit, that happened in 2012. And that's kind of one of the things that have paved the way for like uh, trainers that have fewer materials in them. Because one of the things that has stopped uh, recycling of trainers and running shoes is that there's like 12 to 15 different materials and processes and glues and things. And it's just not really feasible for that to happen. So if you start to think about like a single material upper that can then be either pulled apart from the, the um, sole or if you have a, a full monomaterial trainer, then that's something that can be really recycled. So there's so many different things. If you think about like 3D printing um, and different uh, manufacturing processes, it's just like for a massive nerd like me, I'm just like super, super excited about the fact that this is actually finally coming to life and in a product that is designed to be destroyed you know when you wear a running shoe you are pounding the pavement you are 
really damaging them. And so, you know, for that, for that to be the reality for, for that sort of a product, I think it's very, very exciting. I also think it's, uh, you know, this is leading the field. And I think what we will see, or what I hope we will see, is other manufacturers in, in a similar space, but maybe not necessarily sportswear, who are going to follow this lead as well. You know, it's like the winter boots. Every year, everyone's a new pair of winter boots. Although I will say this will be one of the few years when I don't buy a new pair because I've basically lived in slippers for the last eight months. Me and my Birkenstocks are living together. But, but why wouldn't you do something like that as well? Take that, you know, that leather shoe back and reimagine it for a new season. So I think this is, this is definitely one to watch and one that whatever area of the fashion world you work in, or in fact, any consumer goods, is there something you can learn from this? Now we're running out of time. We've just had time to talk about five of the trends that are going to be available to all WGSN subscribers this month, but there are plenty of others. Have you got any other favourites in there that kind of stand out? Um, one of the ones I'm really excited about is the evolution of CBD to CDN. And that's really about uh, this idea that um, CBD, so the cannabinoid, um, is uh, evolving and it really has stronger sedative qualities, which is something that I'm really in need of at the moment. Um, obviously, pandemic-related stress is always keeping me awake at night. So uh, it's something that I'll be very keen on learning more about come 2021. And what about for you? So my favourite in there is the chickenless eggs. So as a Seagun, i.e. someone who's vegan but eats fish, I have no dairy in my life. I'm not much of a baker, but sometimes, you know, you see a great recipe and you want to bind it together. And I have already bought into this. So I picked up some Oggs Aquafaba, little packets of them in my local supermarket. And they've been sitting in my fridge now for a month. But they last, which is great. So I will report back in a future podcast about how my baking experiments go with chickenless eggs. Can't wait to hear more about it. Awesome. It was great chatting today, Peter. Thank you so much. And with you, it was so nice to be together. We'll make it a date this time, uh, this time next January and we can start talking about the, uh, the 10 trends for 2022, which is just a scary idea that that's only 12 months away now. I'm putting it in my calendar now. I can't wait. 